This podcast is offered by Wildflowers and Sangha. A Dharma Talk by Joa, Selvikisov, Setbon. Good morning. It's a very special and unique moment for me. It's always special and unique, but even more special and unique. Um, so tomorrow we are celebrating uh, the fifth week week of my mother's passing away. has been a lot going on in uh, my life, in my mind, over the past few weeks because of it. Very intense. Um, I think I mentioned that two years ago mother has a particular relevancy for all of us. I, I learned recently that she was actually the person who gave Roshi her first meditation instruction. And then what I knew was that <laughs> she was the one who sent Roshi to the woman that became her teacher, Geno Roshi. So I certainly wouldn't be there because of without her, but we wouldn't be here together if she hadn't given those first instructions. And as we say in Buddhism, the wheel of karma started to roll. And that makes me think that, you know, we, that's the first thing we sing in the morning. All sufferings ever committed by me um, The previous translation that we had was all evil karma ever committed by me. But the notion of karma was a little bit too complicated. And puzzling, so we change it to suffering. But what we do, like all actions that we, that's what karma means, just action, good action, and what we do produces, has effects, simply. So we in the first chant we have is like the negative forms, like all the evil karma and produced by our actions are 
thoughts, our body, rooted in ignorance, anger, greed, anger, and ignorance. But we switch it also, the good deeds we do, our thoughts, minds, mind, actions. Um, so she was diagnosed three years ago with a pancreatic cancer, which is a very severe cancer. And when I heard the news, I kind of had a friend of mine who kind of who is a doctor who kind of warned me that if it is what she what he thought it was the pancreatic cancer was like between three and six months so that was three years ago and I was when I heard the news I was devastated and I thought well let's enjoy those moments I have three to six months with her and let's enjoy that Um, the last thing we're singing in the evening is life and death is of supreme importance so hopefully this practice has something to teach us on life and death I think one of the first things that in that context that it taught me was really just can I enjoy it? Can I enjoy those three months or six months or four months or four days? Just like that. Without trying to be panicked by the thing that hasn't happened yet. Right. What I learned recently talking with her husband later on when all that was when she had passed away is that in those moments in those first weeks she felt that I was a little bit in denial not looking at the reality of things because because I I think I wasn't scared and I wasn't indulging in my fear of her dying. And then she went into treatment, chemotherapy, very heavy. Um, and six months later, she was still around. And I realized, well, my friend, who is a doctor, who said, at most six months, he was, he was wrong. We don't know. And that was another teaching that I have no idea. I have no idea. She started to lose her hair. She bought 
a wig, then the second wig, and over the past I don't know, 12 months or something, she was wearing a wig each time I, each time I was seeing her. And that was very strange, and I could also see that her face was getting thinner and thinner and thinner. But she was still around, still seeing patients, still working, still being fully, fully engaged in life. She wouldn't surrender. She was looking for new treatments, she was looking for alternative treatments, she was doing all kinds of pilat and things and at some point she went to Brazil to spend some time with a healer. Um, all kinds of things so that she wouldn't surrender. And she was very um, open about what was going on for her. Um, she started a blog to keep us all up to date with what was going on. And that went on. You know, that went on. And the treatments worked and the cancer reduced to a point where it was very small and uh, she was still under, uh, she stopped chemotherapy, went under treatment, went, went back to chemotherapy, but it was pretty, pretty good. It was pretty good. The doctors were very happy about the treatment, very impressed that she was still around, still alive. And because the doctors were happy, I was happy and I was hopeful. Um, in June, however, she started to feel some pain in her stomach. Um, early July, she had a scan. I'm sorry, uh, uh, early June, she had a scan. And the scan showed that it was good, it was under control, the cancer was under control. And her husband was teaching in Thailand, in Bangkok. And so she was very scared to go to visit him because she felt a lot of pain in her stomach. And she went back to the doctors. The doctors said, no, no, it's fine. Don't worry. So they gave her morphine. And, and she, and then the last time I saw her, um, conscious was uh, um, at the end of June. I was going on a retreat and she was going the next day of my departure, she was going to Bangkok. And uh, she had pain and we just, I stayed with her and she was lying in bed and we talked and laughed and she, she was in pain though. Um, but I was confident, I was really confident. You know, I was confident because the doctors said I should be confident.
comment on a meditation? Retreat in Switzerland. And I came back and two days later, on, the, on July 2nd, I got a phone call from my stepfather who was in Thailand, in Bangkok, and he said, your mother is dying. 5.30 in the morning. My first thought was, he must be ex exaggerating. Must be not, must, shouldn't be that bad. Yeah. I mean, the doctors said it was okay, so it can't be that bad. But <laughs> yet, something in me kind of shifted. It was, um, And then I turned to Delphine, I said, well, we need to go to Bangkok right now. I sent an email to Geno Roshi, uh, Amy's teacher, who is <coughs> one of my mom's best friend. Um, I texted her, said, she's dying, this is what I received, and then we spoke on the phone, and then we started to look on the internet for a flight. And I called my sister, and my sister was a little bit puzzled, and I said, we're going to Bangkok, are you coming? And she's like, well, why should we go? And, uh, I said, well, I mean, we're going, do whatever you want, but we're going. Right? So she said, I'll call you back, and then couple of minutes later she calls me back it's like yeah we're coming with you I'm coming with you so we waited for my sister to arrive in Paris and um, so what happened is that So before she left, she received morphine in Paris for a few days. She, she was fine. And then late, days later, in Thailand, she started to feel a lot of pain again. But she went to restaurants, went to do Pilates and things. And on the second, and on the first, the Monday, uh, she had a terrible day. She stayed in bed all day. And the next morning, her husband asks her, how do you feel? And she says, well, a little bit better. They hug. And she says to him, this is great. And she says, well, so he says, well, if you feel better, let's good. We're going to go to the swimming pool downstairs in the hotel. And she says, I don't think I can walk that far. Well, she says, if, he, if you think you can't walk that far, I'm going to call, we're going to go to the hospital. So he looks for the number. She stands up, go to the bathroom, and calls him and says, I'm fainting. He goes there, and she dies in his arms. Um, and then 
and he calls the, the doctors of the ho of the, the hotel and then the, the emergency, and they can't do anything. And then at that point, he sends me this message saying, or he calls me and he says, "Your mother is dying. In fact, she was already dead. No pulse, no pulse, no heartbeats, nothing." And so they. Uh, they said, we can't do anything. Uh, we can't do anything here. She's like, what's the option? Well, the option is we bring her to the hospital. And What are the chances? What are the odds? Not much. Well, let's do that. If we, do, if we stay here, then nothing happens. That's the end. So they brought her to the hospital in this terrible Bangkok traffic jam. It's 8 o'clock in the morning. And so in the meantime, in Paris, we're looking for a flight. And um, and we finally managed to find a flight. I sent him a message, and I said, "We're arriving tomorrow at two. At that exact moment, my mother woke up at the emergency room. What they call their resuscitation room. Her breath keeps starts again. The brain had no oxygen for over an hour and a half, so there were brain damage, but the pulse came back. So <laughs> I go to the center, Camille is there, and we're supposed to have this meditation practice, morning practice, and I wasn't really in the mood <laughs> for that. <laughs> so I, I gave up on that. And I waited for my sister to arrive, and so and we leave. And so I receive messages and talk to my father, brain damage. Now the kidney collapsed. It's a matter of hours. She's not going to go through the night. And so we go on the plane with, with that. Um, and when we arrive, uh, She's still breathing. Miraculously, she's still breathing. And I'm not sure when I had the, that thought, but I, I thought, you know, I know it's the end. Why does it make a difference to me that I'm going to be able to say goodbye while her body is still breathing? And they kept saying to me, there is no brain function. And then I receive. Yeah, I was I was devastated when we got there. Obviously, it was the first time I was seeing her without her hair. I couldn't even really approach. The, it was very difficult to approach the bed because they had tubes everywhere and stuff, and I didn't even know where to <laughs> where to walk and where to stand and and how to be close to her because there were all those things going on. Um, I really wanted her to hear. And I was struggling because I didn't know for sure. There were no doctors who were saying to me, yeah, she listens, she, she hears, don't worry, she hears. And she was unconscious, they were saying that they were like brain damage. I didn't know. 
had received a text message from Geno Roshi saying, extended consciousness, extended consciousness. We don't know really to what degree, what I wanted her to be conscious of my presence. I could see that her, <sighs> her heart was beating, even though it was induced by some medicines. But I didn't know to which extent she was aware of what was going on. Um, so I stay with that, and uh, and I mean I had heard about all those stories about people going into coma and coming back and testified that they were hearing something. So I spoke to her. And in those moments, I mean, there was no There was no other alternative that her going away. It was just a matter of hours. We knew it. And what, what came very strongly was, I was saying at the same time, I don't want you to go. And I let you go. first day we were at the hospital on the third a Buddhist nun that we knew uh, that my father knew that my stepfather knew uh, came uh, it is someone that was in Paris she came to Montreuil to Dana to give a talk I wasn't there and I don't know how they met but they she stayed over at my mom's house, and when when she was in Paris with us, with with them, she had a dream of her own mother. And the next, and then the next day, she sat in front of the Buddha at their place, and then in the following hours, she received the news that back home in in Thailand, her mother had passed away. And now she was there on the eve of my mother's passing. Wonderful woman, wonderful woman, smiling, radiant. And she said to us, to my sister and I, you know, don't cry, you know, it's, I don't know how she formulated that, but like, It's like a birthday, or it's like a, it's just a another step, another another moment. I'm not sure how she said it, but it was very 
light and it wasn't that she had no compassion for us she was very touched by us being touched but it was such a a complete different mental framework of course I was a little bit familiar with the kind of the Buddhist approach but it was like <laughs> so embodied there uh, you know, they, that was kind of a lot of when we went to the temple afterwards. It was very much, yeah, you know, death, birthday. Can we celebrate death the same way we celebrate a birthday? Just as something that happens and that just marks a different moment in existence. That was clearly pointing out to my own <laughs> um, representations about what life and death is, where life begins, where life ends, where death arises. And last week, when I had a, a doku-san with uh, someone at, at the previous retreat, and we talked about this, and he said, "Yeah, but you know, we're human. We're human. It's of course we're sad." And all these time in Thailand, I was thinking of that story of that I like so much about this. Uh, I don't know where it came from, but like this this teacher that loses that his own teacher dies, and so his student comes and he sees his teacher crying. He says, "Why do you cry?" I thought, you know, you let go of things. So if we let go of things, you know, we're not we're not sad. That's logical. And he says, it's because I let go that I can cry. Well, it's because I let go that I cry. Yeah. I was trying to be in that space, too. <sighs> to bear witness to the my own pain and at the same time to let go of my desire to keep my to see my mother alive I mean, I could see how her body was just exhausted. There was no... This was it. And 
I had to witness some weird stuff in the room. Um, uh, we were talking to her, and when we were saying meaning, meaningful things, alarms went on, pulse went up. We sat in silence, the pulse went down. What is happening there? I have no idea. And I have no idea, and yet I could see that in my mind I was, I had ideas about not wanting to have ideas about the fact that she's responding because there was no scientist that told me that it was actually working that way. Um, I had an idea that I didn't want to just to say, oh, well, nothing is happening because obviously I was witnessing something. So for days on, I was trying to maintain a, an agnostic position. I don't know. I don't know. Existent, non-existent. I don't know. Um, I was thinking of one of my mentor, who is Stephen Batchelor, and his agnostic position. I was like, yeah, I'm going to maintain that. And for days on, I was trying to maintain that position. You know, I don't know what happened there. I don't want to draw any conclusions. Did she hear me? Um, what happens to the soul or whatever, uh, uh, the I after, after there's no more breathing in the body, you know, all those things. And I realized also I was, I was seriously uh, holding on to my agnostic position. It's really the Cohen, like, <laughs> hundred blows, uh, yes, hundred blows, no, hundred blows, saying nothing, hundred blows, what do you say? So we stayed with her um, the whole day while we were there, on, on the third and on the fourth, my stepfather stayed over and he called me at around six in the morning and said maybe you should come back you know I don't know I don't know for sure but I have the feeling she's going away I have there's the, no particular signs this is just a feeling that I have I was like okay so we went back and uh, And following his intuition, we kind of really said goodbye. We recited the Emet Juku Kanangil, which we will recite tomorrow. We bowed, we said, it's okay if you can go. There were some funky moments for me because he was convinced that 
at some point I was holding her and he was like, you need to free the upper chakra. I was like, what? <laughs> I was holding her with my hand. I was like, yeah, yeah. You're blocking the, you're blocking the, the spirits so that they can't go out. I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> so it was, I wasn't really ready to do that, so I put my hand on the here and I could feel a lot of a lot of heat going on. It was like it was really intense. Uh, and then the pulse went up like crazy, like 140 per pulsation per minute, which is basically the when you run really fast. This is the, the this is the speed that you achieve. Whereas before it was like around 90. And they said if it goes below 60, this is critical. So it was kind of stable at 90, but when we're doing all these things, chanting and trying to get the spirits out of her body, <laughs> with my stepfather doing all kinds of gesture on, to, on, on top of her body, the, the heartbeat shoot up. And then she was still around. So we called, we, after doing that for quite a while, <laughs> we stopped and we just stayed silent with her. And then the pulse went back to 90. And at 3 o'clock, my stepfather said to my sister, Delphine and I, you know, let's get out of the room for a moment just to have something to tell you. So we go out of the room and, and he says, uh, well, you know, what are we going to do next? You know, I mean, she's obviously going to die. We have a little bit of time, but what, what do you want to do? I suggest that we do a cremation here in a Buddhist temple that I know. Our friend Sulak has a temple. I know this man. We all agreed. So that lasted for like four minutes. And when we came back in the room, the pulse had dropped to 60 in the, in the span of four minutes. And then, and then it went down and down and down, down to zero, then went up to 25 or something, and then went down again. And that was it. So we had decided f to do a Buddhist ceremony because we're in Bangkok, because she was partly Buddhist, partly Christian, <laughs> partly Jewish, um, partly Sufi. <laughs> she was broad. She was very broad. So we did all the services in the Buddhist tradition, in a Buddhist temple, in the Theravada tradition, Thai tradition, in a temple that was owned by a man that, that we know. And uh, 
just all those various steps in the ceremonies helped us to help me I'm not sure but but I think it was true for all of us that were present helped us to get accustomed to this new reality and one of the things that we are not very used to in our in in our context uh, so we had several ceremonies with monks and all that and uh, <laughs> and I have to say the monks were so in the first ceremony we had about 10 monks and the second we had I don't know, a little bit, I'm getting a little bit confused with the timeline but then uh, they were it was just part of life at some point, we were in a ceremony and we heard a mobile phone ringing, and they were they were like in line, the monks, and like doing all of the blah, 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 and then there's the phone rings, and the f monk takes out his phone <laughs> and starts to answer while the two others were like still chanting. Yeah. <laughs> and and then we had the cremation, and we came back to pick up the ashes and. I had that, <laughs> and uh, I wanted to bring back some ashes, part of it. Not all of it, but part of it, and I felt that would help me to get a, something real in there, like to get me, to help me get accustomed with that idea. And, <laughs> and so we had a little weird discussion about how much ashes did I want because I needed to get a box so my sister then because I wanted you know, some and then she thought oh yeah maybe it would be a good idea but she I felt like in order for me to get accustomed to the project to the project to the <laughs> yeah it was a project <laughs> to the letting go <laughs> that probably that amount was was a good amount <laughs> My sister went for something smaller, but because I'm greedy, I went for something bigger. <laughs> so we got the, I got my little funeral urn, and then when we got back, they asked us to, and in my head, when it, in, I went to cre several cremations, but, you know, I had that idea that I saw people getting out of with a cremation with a box like this, and it's only ashes. It's not the way it happens there. You know, they actually because the oven, <laughs> the oven is not hot enough, you get still bones. And so they take the bones out, kind of reconstitute the skeleton, and then with chopsticks, I had to pick up some bones to put in my funeral urn, which was quite weird. And then they didn't really want to give me some ashes, because there were some ashes, and they had put all the ashes in one thing. I was like, no, 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 I want some ashes, so. <laughs> putting ashes of my mother in my box <coughs> was kind of funny on the, on while well, that happened. <sighs> and I brought back my ashes and my luggage. Now they're standing in my on my desk in Paris.
I've been sitting with that all that time. trying to get accustomed to that idea that her physical body is not longer there. The sadness and also the the immense sense of gratitude that I have. There was one, Michel Roshi, Michel Dubois Roshi, last week told me, you know, she also, this is a, parents are making an offering by leaving also so that you can put them behind you. Ancestors, they're not blocking the way. I think I like the fact that she was blocking my way <laughs> to some extent. Yeah. But it's true that she's not blocking the way. Um, I've been trying to finish this book about me, her, her life, her path, my path for years. It's a fiction novel, partly based on her story. Um, And one of the first thoughts that I had when I was lying next to her was like, yeah, well, (laughs) this might help me to finish it now. She's not blocking the way anymore. She's not saying, well, why don't you do this or that? Which she did. has been also, uh, this whole experience has been so profound that has really kind of pushed me to look at, to contemplate the notion of existence. What is it? Where does it stop? Where does it end? You know, I was it, of course, we couldn't help afterwards when she passed away, you know thought, where is she, and is she with us? What kind of other form and I was holding my agnostic position, yeah, and I'm not going to decide anything you know i don't I don't go, I don't fall for that. I don't fall for the spirits. I don't fall for the soul. I don't fall for, I don't know, you know. And I really don't know. And I'm really clear that I don't know. (laughs) And my stepfather was not really on that page. He was, 
I think also it helps, certainly it helps to believe that or to have the experience so that you tend to believe that there is, the person is still around. So we asked the Damananda, this Buddhist nun, and she's like, yeah, yeah, well, you know, for 49 days. And, and then <laughs> 49 days, there's this moment, you know, it's like it's in between, and she's still with us, but not, physical, not physically. And then we learned that in some other traditions, it's like not 49 days, but it's like 150 or something. <laughs> and then my sister said, yeah, but in terms of time, in terms of time, when you're dead, what's 24 hours anyway? <laughs> so then you... S then Geno Roshi felt her presence even last week during in the transmission room. Do we imagine this? Do we not imagine this? Is this real, not real? also thought about this what was called this movie maybe some of you know it's like it, it's, it's an animation movie uh, and it's it, it's uh, I'm not sure about the story but like it's like it's uh, must be based on some Mexican myth you know uh, Coco, Coco, right? And I, I thought about that. I thought about Coco, that, that idea that kind of people don't really die until and while they're still remembered. And they really die when people don't forget, forget about them. So they die first time physically, and then people on Earth remember them. And then when nobody's there to remember them, they really die. I was thinking of that. And I was, I mean, I could totally bear witness to the fact that she was obviously very present to me. I was, it helped me it, tremendously to also know that in various sanghas around the world, they did ceremonies, services. She had such an impact. in Paris, but also in Germany, in the US, in Holland, they did services in so many places, in England. When uh, the ancient Buddhist texts Interestingly enough, in several points, when people ask Shakyamuni, you know, is there something after this life? 
it doesn't answer. And this is one of the, he doesn't answer and in, in several occasions when really people ask, ask him, does this exist or not? doesn't answer and I, I, I can see how we we are I am we are I think we're all drawn to making a stance like it exists or it doesn't exist we're looking for ontology we're looking for what is it and, and then we get stuck. And I was getting stuck with this. So, is she around or is she not around? I was... Instead of that, I think, in our teaching, Instead of going for the what is it or what is it not, we're going in terms of, we're looking at the process. We're looking, we're thinking of it as, as, as a process. How does it operate in me? What is happening for me? The depth of the sadness And I was thinking it could be, you know, feeling, feeling the sadness, feeling the pain. I think one of what is really great with all those ceremonies that we did, you know, every day for seven days and then once a week and then there is a, there is a path for the pain that I'm walking on. Um, and it's it's changing, it's changing all the time. The, I've spent every single day last week crying. Didn't really happen since I've arrived here. So it mutates, it changes, and I and I can see that it's can be easy to. There's almost part of me that sometimes feel I want to hold on to that sadness, to that particular <coughs> sadness, because. There's a quality in there that makes, makes me feel that my mother is really still so close. And that it's possible to actually hold on to that. Um, I personally, it's not the first time that, that I experience the, the, the fact that I can be really attached even to my yeah the the my neu my neurosis my my nostalgia or you know that 
it, it, it has a function that I'm very attached to it. I'm very attached to that. Um, so, seeing it and trying to, okay, let's try to not get stuck. Um, And to go back to this koan, like the monks, the, the master saying, you know, I cry, it's because I let go that I cry. That experience can also be, you know, I don't let go and therefore I cry. But the, qu the quality of the experience is not the same. I think I feel less, I mean, the, yeah, the quality of the sadness has changed over the past five weeks. Um, and I'm just, yeah, I'm just sitting with that. I'm just really trying to to be true to that, to that process, not holding on to any, any steps and, and if the practice has, in, in, in that context, in that situation, if the practice, what I, if I can say what the practice taught me was was to be fearless and to be open in this as much as I could in this context. I was I was wondering when I entered in the room, I was wondering how I would manage to behave in front of her body. Um, and to my great surprise, I I went to hold her and touch her and kiss her and these were the the sweetest moments.
spoke about memories. Memories. Um, the I remember realizing the uh, the the retreats, the two week retreats I was in. It was because there was this very special thing was going to happen someone was receiving transmission so there were all these teachers there and something that struck me very much really caught my attention was how, s how many of them they would talk about memories hmm. when when they received transmission, the retreat that they received transmission, and someone that was very much there for them really helped them. Uh, and because for me, that retreat was amongst various things. For me, it was very much about this realism, this seeing, this thing with being human, being fully human. There was this quote uh, from Gino Roshi, I think. Uh, we are not something like, uh, or to the effect of, we are not just, or we are not human beings trying to be Buddhas. We are Buddhas trying to be fully human. Mm. And this, this really, for me, it was really, Ah, okay, uh, and so many people talked about memories, and for me it was this idea that this seems to be something really human, hmm. memories, this thing with the memories. Uh, Michel Sensei would talk about <laughs> memories all the time. Uh, When now when we were talking, I was uh, I was thinking about my my grandma, my grandmother, which is probably the closest person that I had who has died. Uh, she died a long time ago, uh, 1990, I think. Uh, and it's uh, probably because it's the closest person that I ever knew that has died. That's always what comes to mind when I think of, because I thought about what you said. I, I thought about that sometimes. What does it mean to die? How much is she dead? Mm. When there is at least well, there's more than one, but when there is one person still thinks about someone, still thinks about mm. her. So, what? So, what does it mean to be dead? To have died? Like you said, the, 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 the Buddhist teachings or something. That, you know, no one is really dead until someone thinks about them. So it, yeah, it's it's kind of puzzling in a way. Yeah, of course she's dead, but uh, mm -hmm. so yeah. So what is this thinking about her, remembering her, having memories about? It's kind of yeah, it's kind of strange. In 
kind of substance does this have? Is this like it's real or it's just... Yeah, and when we start to raise these questions, we very easily fall back into what I call ontology. It's like, uh, <laughs> I, want, I, want, I want to give a, I want to have a, a content about what is it? You know, and what is the I? Okay, there's a beginning, there's the end, there's a framework, there's a body, there's a, okay, there's consciousness, and, and then suddenly at that moment of death, <sighs> that those, the, 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 you have a totally different experience. I mean, I certainly didn't have, did have a totally different experience. That also, uh, this is something I, I'd like to share with you, is like some, it's very, it struck me so much how I do have the knowledge the, that she's not physically there anymore. But it's like the process of integrating integration in my own body and cell and flesh that she is no longer physically available to me it is very hard so there's something on one hand like the kind of yeah the intellectual knowledge of it and like the getting it into a system and that goes with this but that also goes with you know we read buddhist texts and oh yeah well there's no i and the you know it's like non-substantial substantiality of the I and this is a fiction yeah yeah I know it yeah I know it right I, I got that yeah and I got the, the impermanence right impermanence yeah yeah I got the notion of impermanence everything it's a flux yeah right <laughs> the discrepancy between the actual you know intellectual understanding of it and the the embodiment of okay now how, how do I integrate that in my cells and, and, and then how do I how does it transform my own my whole existence and there's a huge shift in there huge shift and this is it's, for me it's also related to the fact I mean why do we keep continuing practicing it's like I mean this really this thing of integration all the time and even if you get like a certain understanding a certain flash uh, you know it kind of goes away and then you might have an understanding of something else and just like it needs to be embodied and that is very it's and it, uh, to some extent i feel it's not even under our control or the control it's just like the job is just to welcome that and and uh so that that process can actually happen um, but that really that is an aspect that really stunned me that still stuns me yeah I I know she's not around and then I'm, I know I know I'm gonna go back to Paris she's not gonna be around and then part of me feel oh, of course she will <laughs> but it still hasn't <laughs> That process is actually still undergoing. Yeah. And, and about the memory, about the memories, I feel when you mention memory, I feel another kind of word that pops up is the word, are the word stories. I mean, in 
in the Zen tradition, we have all these marvelous stories, koan study, ko with, with the koan studies. They're just they're stories about people meeting each other, yeah. whether they're a little bit fic fictionist or not. But this is our fabric. You know. We are constituted of stories. This is who we are. And, uh, and of course, the problem is when we get attached to one particular story and not another one. Uh, we know that. But all those stories, that the fabric of our life, are stories. that are being transmitted to us from generation to generation. Yeah. So the body of the Zen stories and the body of the family stories and the body of the other type of stories, but those are really just and that continues to live in us yeah. and inspire us. And the only reason why we keep those, main reason why we keep those Zen stories and is like possibly it might inspire us. But also, as Roshi mentioned, it's also good that other stories come up in, the, in that body of stories so that we can get inspired by something that might be more relevant us. Stories, and I also would add cooking and smell. I say that because this is, you know, stories, uh, sounds and all that, but it's like also the realm of sensations. And I was, I was, I've been, I love cooking and I've been, uh, I was watching the, the Netflix series chef's table and i was fast i was really really struck me how all when when all those chefs were telling their stories about their co relationship to cooking in all the cases it went down it boils down to my mother my grandfather my grandmother that smell that sensation that the thing that we share together, like physically, you know, eating together. And this is like the transmission of certain memories, but really sensuality. And uh, that's precious. When we think of people, I think it's like, what did our parents, if we think about memories of our parents, Probably in some of that, they're like, okay, the food that we had with them, the things that she cooked, she, he cooked, the places that we went to with the smell of the... And that's precious, and that's how it continues to live on. I have no answer about where she is and to which extent 
her um, consciousness is framed. But I can testify of that process. <laughs>